Welcome to Dispatch Live. I'm sorry if that was a particularly long pause, but we had a especially spicy green room conversation that we did not want to leak into the main Dispatch Live. So um, well, you're just going to have to be left wondering what that was. Uh, maybe bonus Patreon content one day, but I'm incredibly thrilled <laughs> to, to be here. Um, I'm David French. I've got the one and only Esther Eaton, the one and only Kevin Williamson, and we're going to be talking about debt ceiling. We're going to be talking about classified documents and whatever else is on your mind. Um, let's start with debt ceiling. Go to you first, Esther. What is going on right now? What's going on right now is what goes on periodically, you know, more or less since 1917 when this came about, although it's gotten more dramatic in recent years, <laughs> which is that, you know, the Treasury is hitting the limit that Congress has set for how much money it can borrow to pay for the spending that Congress has authorized. So, you know, the time has come to write the checks that they're, they're, I'm going to mess up that phrase. I was going to say cash the checks that their mouths have written. But anyway, <laughs> so Yellen has has sent a letter to congressional leaders saying, hey, we're going to hit this limit. We're going to start, you know, moving money around to delay that as we typically do, because you guys have trouble getting your act together on this. But you might want to think about going ahead and raising that limit. And We've known for a while now that this is going to be a dramatic showdown. Um, and so just the rumble is getting started in terms of particularly on the House side, Republicans saying, well, what we want in exchange for voting to raise this ceiling is, you know, um, a balanced budget within 10 years. That's that's Chip Roy's idea, which is just going to be an insane amount of spending cuts to achieve something like that. Uh, it's just wildly unrealistic. And then you have on the other side, the White House saying, well, we're not negotiating at all. Uh, you should just do this. You should do a clean raise because we've already agreed to this spending and everyone just needs to grow up here. So the two negotiating sides are not real close together, nor are the Republicans particularly unified in what they're asking for at this point. And so what we're expecting to see is a bit of a knockdown drag out fight. So, Esther, just to make this super clear for people, raising the debt limit is not authorizing new spending. It is extending the debt limit to allow for debt to pay for, and I have air quotes if you're just listening to this, pay for the spending that has already been authorized. Correct? That is exactly correct. It's a it's a common misnomer, and it's I mean, part of the reason that that's a common misunderstanding is because it so often gets rhetorically tied together, where typically Republicans say, if we're going to do this, we have to cut spending because we're spending too much. And you can you can certainly make an argument that we're spending too much, but that's not what the debt ceiling itself being raised is doing. Right. So you've passed laws that not just authorize, but mandate certain spending. Uh, Social Security, Medicare, defense contracts, you name it. Um, and the question is then, how do we pay for that? And the answer is some tax revenue, some debt. And okay, so Kevin, heading to you. Hmm. First of all, I'm not, the, I'm not the one and only Kevin Williamson, as you introduced me. There are at least four people who write that are named Kevin Williamson that I know of. That, that write? Yeah. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, there is a David French who is in our world, who's the, sure, yeah. I believe, 
the the lobbyist for the National Retail Federation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So, Kevin, over to you. What are what is going through your mind when you hear Republicans saying we need to use the debt ceiling to engineer some fiscal discipline in the United States of America? I just what what's going through your mind? Well, rage and contempt mainly, but um, <laughs> let me. Uh, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about this conversation is that. Congress always acts like this spending situation is something that's been done to them, you know, (laughs) and you want to say you guys write all the spending authorization bills, you're right all the tax bills. If you don't like the way the spending and the taxing is going, you're the guys in charge of it. You know, I think I think like, you know, American Express has the thing where there's there's no actual credit limit on the cards. And uh, but if I go out and try to buy a Lamborghini, you know, I'll get a phone call and they'll say, really, we're not approving this. This is not going to happen. But if they did approve the Lamborghini, I got stuck with Lamborghini I couldn't pay for. And I were Republican in Congress. I'd be blaming American Express for approving it, essentially, you know, for making good on the decisions and requests that I made. Um, That being said, um, the only thing you really the only check you really have to write is the interest on the debt check. You know, mm-hmm. you have to make good on your financial obligations. Otherwise, you have a default, and that's a real serious thing. Um, we've seen defaults for countries like Argentina. No one's really ever seen a default for a country like the United States that's, depending on the year, between one-fifth and one-quarter of the world's economic output. So if that the government of that country defaults, that's going to have some shockwaves that we don't know what they would look like. And because I'm a conservative, I'm risk-averse, and I don't want to see that happen. That being said, um, there's no real reason why default should be much of a threat. Um, the federal government will take in about $5 trillion in taxes this year, and it'll owe about $500 billion in debt payments. So it's got the money to make good on its basic financial obligations to bondholders and such and to avoid a default. Now, it might cause all sorts of other chaos uh, in the world. So um, I would prefer that this happened in a more orderly and predictable and stability-inducing fashion than the way it does. But I don't think that, um, I mean, never mind Republicans, but you know, sort of we as conservatives or we as people who can count and, and do math should allow the talk of default to uh, be used to buffalo us into uh, accepting another open-ended period of, of fiscal indiscipline. Uh, eventually, you know, the books have to be balanced. Eventually, you have to make good on this stuff. And there's really no such thing. You know, I always repeat this until people will get it, which will be never. But there's no such thing as a tax cut when you're running a deficit. You know, it's a tax deferral. These bills mm-hmm. eventually come due. And the money that you don't want to uh, spend now and do without the returns on, you'll have to do in the future at some point with interest. So Republicans, you know, in the Trump years pretty much gave up what little credibility they had on the issue of fiscal discipline. They didn't have much going into that. But um, irrespective of how we feel about, you know, the Republican Party as a kind of, you know, moral entity in politics, it's probably going to fall to them just for naked political reasons to be the, the, the party that pursues fiscal responsibility, although not necessarily. You know, the example I sometimes point to is the the Canadian crisis in the 1990s. When they had a left-wing government, when they had their financial crisis, their fiscal crisis, and that government instituted a package of reforms that was essentially, you know, $10 in spending cuts for every dollar in tax increase, hmm. um, 
which would be better than the best imaginable deal uh, for a you know, fiscal conservative in the United States to think of. They did that, of course, because they didn't really have any choice. And uh, once all the bad options are taken away and the good options, the only thing left on the table, and it's easy to make the right decision. And one hopes that, you know, the United States gets ahead of this before we get forced into a decision like that. Because, again, with no uh, disrespectment for Canada, it's not economically all that important a country uh, in, in global terms. And I mean, I'm going to get hell for that. But um, but it's not. It's, it's a relatively small economy, at least relatively small relative to the United States. And um you know, we're not only putting ourselves at unnecessary risk, but we're putting the rest of the world, the world economic system at unnecessary risk, um, particularly given the unique role that Treasury securities play in, you know, capitalizing banks and insurance companies and things like that. Um, if the thing that you were using as uh, when you use the term gold standard and get 5000 emails about the real gold standard, the thing you're using as your, you know, your triple A rated uh, basis of risk free uh, stores of value. If it starts to look like it's not that, then that introduces all sorts of risks and new calculations that have to be made, which introduce all sorts of additional costs, which makes the entire world economy less efficient than it could be. And um, that costs you know real money that has real effects on people's lives. It has to do with you know how many calories poor people in poor countries get to eat and whether their houses are warm and things like that. You know every little uh, every little bit of efficiency matters on the global scale and. Uh, we should do our best to be a force for stability rather than one for instability. So Esther, quick question, uh, and then we're going to go on to talk about some classified documents. Is there any sense, we know we know starting positions. Biden says clean debt increase. Proy say says balance the budget in 10 years. Those are not the ending positions. Uh, do we have any sense of any outline of a deal here or is this a situation one of these other one yet another situation where everyone is saying well a deal's going to have to happen but we're going to also have to feel some pain before we get there is there any sense of an outline here or are we still are we flying blind at the moment you know i haven't done enough you know reporting on the hill to have a clear vision for you of what a deal could look like um and we're in early stages of this at the moment, so it's hard to say. I mean, I, I do think that no one, well, don't want to say no one, but generally the expectation isn't that we're going to have a clean raise or that we're going to try for some sort of budget balancing miracle. Um, so some of the things that can happen in the margins um, are, you know, unpopular uh, social programs. So I just mean in the sense of the type of, you know, oh, this is woke spending that Republicans like to point to. Maybe <laughs> if they can get something cut there that they can claim a win from, I guess that would be what I'm watching for. Mm -hmm. I don't have a specific prediction about what it'll be, but something that allows the, you know, um, flamethrowing caucus to be able to say that we forced this cut. Um, is the most I would expect to see personally. I'm very. It would be interesting if the if the Republicans would act like they believed in their own rhetoric, and 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 say, look, we control the House, Democrats control the Senate, they control the White House. We want a balanced budget. Let's sit down and see what a deal would actually look like. Um, what would they agree to? It's not going to be you know ten dollars in cuts for every dollar in tax increases, but um, 
presumably there is some long-term, maybe not budget balancing, but budget making sane deal that Democrats would agree to. Um, but you're not going to get a great deal when you only control the House. Yeah. You know, one thing I just want to throw out there, and and look, I take Kevin's point very well that the Republicans don't have any moral credibility or intellectual credibility in their argument for less spending, but less spending and greater fiscal discipline, even if motivated by pure negative partisanship, is still <laughs> greater fiscal discipline. Mm. But the tail of the tape here is really fascinating to me because I'm I. Uh, what is it that uh, Ted Lasso says a goldfish has the shortest memory in the animal kingdom? I'm no goldfish. So I remember just in the recent last couple of years, not just fiscal responsibility being abandoned by the GOP, but being mocked, yeah. mocked by the new right for the very idea that fiscal responsibility should be any kind of focus of the right in America. And Look, the Trump administration lived up to that. There's this pattern that says in the in the last 20 plus years where you would see a recession would be a spike in deficits, followed by a gradual reduction of deficits during an economic recovery, followed by a spike if there was another recession and gradual reduction. Trump was the only president who had increased deficits every single year of his presidency, every single year, including in peace and prosperity. So the Republicans absolutely made good on their mockery of fiscal discipline. Um, and I don't believe that they've had a come to Jesus moment, but I do believe in negative polarization. <laughs> and that's a very strong force. Okay. Speaking of um, bipartisan problems or partisan problems or just problems, Esther, classified information, Joe Biden, where are we? Where are we right now? Yeah, this is the the one issue that's really bringing us together, uh, which is that <laughs> everyone has trouble keeping track of classified documents. So uh, we're in, in some ways, a very similar boat to where we were um, a few days ago, which is just that we went from one cache of documents being discovered from Biden's vice presidency to now a few and in multiple locations, uh, specifically at his think tank office in Washington, which was the original, and then um, several more found in his Wilmington home, which is a place that he works from frequently um, and has throughout his career. Uh, and so where he would have you know, been authorized to have classified documents during his vice presidency, he had a facility set up, but they should have been returned after he left office. So um, from what the administration says, uh, his lawyers conducted a search and found these, and they have since been returned uh, to their to their rightful holders. The other thing, of course, that happened last week is we had a special counsel appointed who's going to look into this. So now we have two special counsels looking at classified documents cases, uh, which is always exciting. I personally hope that they begin a beautiful friendship somehow from all of this. Um, but yeah, so I mean- It just seems less special when there's two of them. Though, I know, it's just- <laughs> Yeah, it just dilutes it, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, we've had a few in the past few years. I propose that they they form a club. Yeah. So so he'll be looking into that. Um, presumably, you know, top of the to-do list is figuring out how these documents got there. Uh, you know, who carried them, who should have packed them up and didn't, what went down. The things we still don't know is what is in these documents, like how much of a security threat it poses, and then uh, who might have had access to them. Biden's team says they don't keep a visitor log for the Wilmington home. 
So we just don't have a clear idea at this point um, who might have had access to the secrets contained. Um, but one thing, David, I want to ask you about is this, this narrative that I've seen popping up sort of over the weekend, which is not a, it's not a new one. When I was looking at this, I found a congressional hearing on it from 2004. So this has been around right. obviously for a while, but it's this question of overclassification of documents, which isn't, you know, a defense for the kind of top secret stuff that we're looking at with Biden potentially, but I think is an interesting question. So what are your thoughts on this? How much of a scourge is it? Oh yeah, that's a great question. So number one, I would say we overclassify at a large scale. There's to me a no question about that. But at the same time, number two, even with overclassification, it's not hard to properly handle classified information. So there's too much of it, but it's still easily controlled, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I, I'll just explain one reason why we have too much, or I think the principal reason why we have too much, it's not some sort of nefarious, widespread desire to reject transparency. A lot of it is plain old inertia. And, and here's what I mean. So when I was in Iraq, I had two computers. One computer was um, for non-classified information. The other com uh, computer was for classified information up to secret. So they were called the Nippernet and the Sippernet. And they did not communicate with each other. You could not email from a secret computer to a non-classified computer. If you send an email from a non-classified computer to a secret computer, it wouldn't read it. They just didn't. They were separate universes. And then whenever you created a document on the secret computer, it automatically imprinted upon it classification markings. So if I just opened up and sent an email, it could say, happy birthday, Jim. <laughs> I hope, you know, I hope it's gone well. Did your family send you something since all, you know, respectfully, David, secret. <laughs> because, <laughs> and then it's secret. It's a classified document, even though the information in there shouldn't be classified at all. It's a classified document. It's generated in a classified system. It's stamped classified. And so I can't even begin to tell you the amount of routine correspondence that I saw that was stamped and marked classified because it was just people emailing each other on the Sippernet. And so that's a vast amount of classified information, just fast. Then you have this whole issue, especially in military circles, when in doubt, classify. So I'm not quite sure where that goes. So if it's between, now it's not when in doubt, make it top secret. It's much more like, I don't know if this is unclassified or confidential. I'll make it confidential. I don't know if this is confidential or secret. I'll make it secret. So a lot of this is just sort of um, discretion is the better part of valor, sort of institutional caution, operation of aut the automatic operation of various systems. And so if the one system you know where you can communicate freely is your secret computer system, what are you going to spend most of your time on? That one. And so it's just, it's a way in which like just sheer raw human nature and inertia combines to create a massive body of classified information. Much of it has no business being classified. It's not going to harm national security if you see it. Um, but it's when in doubt or just, or just sheer, this is the system I'm on, or this is the document delivery system I'm using. And it's a, it's a mess. I do think there are some people who classify things as a 
means of keeping them from pub the public improperly. I do think that occurs, but that is not the overclassification issue at its core. I, in my experience, it's just sheer inertia. It's just easier uh, to deal to deal with this. And to deal with uh, when you're engaged in talking to people have a security clearance, it's easier to talk to them on secret systems often. So, I, Kevin, I'm I'm really interested. I it's easy for me to dive into the legal distinctions between Trump, what we know about Trump right now, what we knew about Clinton, what we know about Biden, and do these various comparisons. Um, can, can I give you an example of one of those that was just bugging me? Yeah, go for it. So uh, Susan Milligan, writing in U.S. News and World Report, which is a real newspaper, writes this sentence, I kid you not. Legally, the differences between the cases of former President Donald Trump and sitting President Joe Biden are dramatically different, which is to say she says the differences are different. <laughs> That's a very interesting Ooh. sentence. Then she goes on to literally write, of course, Republicans pounced, uh, uh -huh. which, which, which appears in there later. So, yeah, the differences are different, and uh, it's really impossible to argue with logic like that. You know, David, uh, you were talking with Sarah about this earlier on uh, advisory opinions and uh, the subject of classification. And I, I had a thought about that, that when the, um, you know, when the stuff happened with Hillary Clinton way back when, and uh, I guess it was Comey who gave the the press conference about, um, well, the statute says this, and obviously she broke the law under the statute with these four other criteria that yeah. we want to bring in. One of the reasons they brought that in, I think, maybe an unstated, uh, well, obviously unstated reason, but um, is that basically every Bigfoot journalist, columnist, pundit in Washington, and a lot of lobbyists gets the occasional peek at a classified document. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something people with power do sometimes to kind of, you know, butter you up or to demonstrate their power, or to, uh, you know, make you feel uh, special and with the, with the idea of getting a favor out of you. And if, uh, particularly if it got all the way down to the stuff that's just labeled confidential, if we were actually prosecuting all those cases, there wouldn't be enough courts in this country to, uh, to uh, you know, empty out all the news desks in America of people who see this stuff from time to time. So I, I interrupted you before you got to finish your uh, your question, though. Yeah. I, so my my question is, do I'm trying to phrase it the right way? Um, I so for example, I see legal differences based on what we know between Biden mm -hmm. and Trump. But as a matter of just political reality, <laughs> um, is this the kind of thing that really takes the Trump prosecution for classified information mishandling off the table? Just as a matter, yeah, I think of likely it, it probably does. You know, um, uh, not to, to fixate on the on, on Hillary Clinton again, but um, you know, when when the examples I like to use is when the cattle future story happened, you know, way back in the Clinton campaign in the '90s, before Esther was born, um, maybe literally before Esther was born. I was joking about that, but probably yeah. Anyway, um, it was a real scandal, and if you kind of dug into it, you could see how it worked. And, you know, the broker in question was in trouble for doing similar things where he was loading the accounts of favored clients with winning bets and slopping off the losing bets on people who didn't matter. But try to explain cattle futures trading to like the average American and their eyes just kind of can glaze over and they're going to look at you like an idiot. But then the Lewinsky thing comes because everyone understands sex. You know, everyone understands right. you're not supposed to cheat on your wife. Um, nobody knows or cares very much about the difference between, you know, 
what's in a skiff and what's not in a skiff and what's just confidential and, and all that stuff. But everyone kind of understands hypocrisy. And uh, particularly with Biden having gone around kind of lecturing the public and Trump at large about, um, you know, the irresponsibility of the way Trump handled things, then um, politically, that's going to make it, yeah, very difficult, I think, to uh, to um, go after Trump and, and let Biden slide. Uh, also, and of course, that's, you know, um, not as bad as Trump is not a, just an excuse for a lot of things. Like uh, there are all sorts of things I could do in my life, my private life around my house and try to explain to my wife, well, not as bad as Donald Trump. And um, that would not fly, I don't think. I don't think it should fly probably in, in this case either. You know, a couple of things about this story that really kind of um, I have questions about. First of all, Corvette. <laughs> Joe Biden is the Camaro guy, if ever there was a Camaro guy. <laughs> and uh, I think the onion really had it right of, you know, Joe Biden washing his convertible in his, his yeah. Camaro in the uh, in the driveway. Also, why were the lawyers looking around? Does he have lawyers come and randomly search his house? I mean, I had a lawyer who used to come randomly search my house until I finally paid him. But after he got <laughs> his money, you know, he stopped, stopped doing that. Um, you know, there was a as I understand it, a process in place by which the National Archives identified in the Trump case that certain documents were missing and they asked for them back. Well, why didn't that process also identify the missing Biden documents? Or maybe it did. Um, obviously, there were some shenanigans that were undertaken to ensure that this did not become public knowledge until after the midterm elections. I'd kind of like to know more about what those were. And um, yeah, I have some some other um, some other you know questions about this stuff. Uh, again, to your, your earlier podcast with Sarah, she pointed out, you know, Biden didn't lie about this stuff. He didn't deny being in possession mm -hmm. of these documents. So nobody ever asked him. You know, it never right. came up. And so there's apparently just, you know, no kind of oversight here or there's oversight that applies in one case, but not in the other case. Um, granted, I if it were up to me, I'd probably apply a heightened level of oversight to Donald Trump, too, because he's shifty and dishonorable and you got to keep an eye on him and count the spoons and all that stuff. But yeah, this is, um, I mean, the, the oldest, you know, and worst complaint that you hear being on the right is, you know, imagine if a Republican had done this or, you know, imagine if it had been the other guy. But that doesn't mean it's not true in some of right. these cases. And right. um, now you can certainly turn it around in this case, the people who made excuses for Trump and want to, you know, crucify Biden for this now. Um, but it's much more significant that it's the other way around, you know, of, um, of, um, you know, people who were uh, wanting to have Trump tried for, you know, espionage or treason or something. We're now Biden like, hey, you know, he's in the garage with the Corvette. And, uh, you know, it's what we're also worried about, you know, when he came and came clean about it when he had no other choice and he was busted. Um, I would actually, here's one of those things that always drives me nuts. Everyone's talking about, well, Biden is cooperating and he, you know, came clean and admitted to it and got the documents back and had his lawyers write a letter and all that sort of stuff. After the story broke, right? I mean, after he got you know, sort of caught with this stuff. And um, I would have had a lot more respect for Biden if he had, um, you know, been a little more forthcoming about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, not try to be, uh, you know, a sneaky feet about it. So, Esther, I got a question for you before you, you you've got to jump off here in the last couple of minutes. You're just a, a tiny bit younger than me, like what, a year or two years younger? Six months. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so no, what I think about when I think about the younger generation in the United States, it's been a while since there's been a politician where you can say of them, a president, 
that as a general rule, I feel like they're, they have a lot of integrity. It's not that they're perfect, but I generally believe what they say. I generally think they have a decent amount of integrity. Um, did you, ha do you see in sort of a, the younger cohort in the United States, a, a, a level of cynicism that is that is essentially this is just the way these guys are um after these last six years or since you know since 2015 when trump emerged as a front runner i'm i'm just very curious because a lot of younger conservatives i run into they have no memory of an alternative version of conservatism than trumpism um and so i i'm just curious as to sort of where where you see people are on a desire for integrity in politics or did is it just written off you know i don't in terms of me personally i don't know if i generally distrust politicians because i'm a journalist or whether i became a journalist because i distrust them but <laughs> but i do think and and you know i'd have to look on the data look at the data on this to know whether it's really much of an anomaly compared to previous generations, but absolutely there's a good amount of cynicism. Um, I don't know that uh, young people really, it, it kind of feels like there's two options. And again, this is just based on personal impressions. Either you check out entirely and so you just don't think about it. And so in effect, you're kind of assuming that politicians are telling enough of the truth to get by, or you're paying attention enough to, yeah, pretty much assume that everybody's a liar if you get down far enough. And so why would you even, you know, try to demand something else? Because that's not a realistic demand. So let's not waste our time on holding them to a standard that they're never going to meet. So again, hard to say for me personally, whether that's a historical anomaly, but I do think it's a pretty common sentiment. Yeah. Well, Esther may not want to be the voice of her generation, but um, you know, <laughs> no, you are tonight. You are six weeks after I was born. Richard Nixon was reelected in a forty-nine state landslide. <laughs> so I think the Generation <laughs> X has uh, has a pretty good reason to be cynical if uh, if we if we want to. Yeah, yeah. I, I was um, eleven years old when Reagan was sworn in, about to be twelve. So for me. Reagan was the guy that I knew as like when I'm coming of age into politics and becoming and starting to pay attention to politics. It was Ronald Reagan, followed by George H.W. Bush. Both of them were men who obviously not perfect, but you would think of them as having real integrity. Yeah. And then you follow that with Clinton, who I didn't think have a shred of integrity. And so you can see how it would shape you for about 20 solid years to think of the GOP as the home of of presidential uh, of presidents who had some real integrity and the Democrats is not really. And those are those are formative. I mean, that's a, a formative stretch. And I know for me, it's been kind of a, a big reset moment to have all that scrambled. You know, one of my favorite examples of a politician who actually could and was willing to tell the truth about sometimes embarrassing things. Uh, was was William Weld when he's governor of Massachusetts. And I liked him for just a, a lot of reasons. But he also had a sense of humor, which kind of made it easier. But my my favorite, one of my favorite stories about him was, do you remember when he passed out at a press conference one time? Like he fainted? Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, he fainted. It was a press conference, some kind of public event, and he just fainted. And his press office put out some ludicrous BS story about he had gone in for um, um, 
a vaccine booster or something and it had a reaction to it and it caused him to get you know light uh dizzy headed and to pass out and so um someone at the press asked him about it you know later in the week the next time he appeared and they asked him about that story whether he'd had a booster and he sort of shook his head and he said no but there were shots involved (laughs) (laughs) and uh i thought that was pretty good that's good that's good yeah all right right, esther we need to that's a great note (laughs) all right thank you esther all right. Uh, so, Kevin, I've got a, some a, 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 li- a reader or I mean a listener viewer question. I'll get it right. Mm. If it's known that debt will need to be incurred for spending that's being authorized, why can't the debt authorization be part of the spending legislation? Yeah, I was thinking about that a while back. I don't see any reason why it couldn't. I'm not aware of any reason of legislative procedure um, why those. Um, Bills couldn't be combined. It's just not something that we've uh, historically done. So, um, I mean, I suppose that would make these ridiculous omnibus spending bills and stuff we do that much more difficult to pass. Right. You know, we always, there are a couple of pressure points to get leaned on. There are these omnibus funding bills, there are military authorization bills, and, you know, debt ceiling increases and a few other things like that that have emerged as these kind of legislative choke points that people try to make the most of. What's interesting to me about that, though, is if you go back and look at it, um, of all the, you know, kind of grandstanding confrontations and government shutdowns and other stuff that you've seen come out of these attempts of people to make the maximum political exploitation of these choke points, nothing big's really ever come out of one. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you know, a few things, but nothing that's like, you know, nothing really world changing has, uh, you know, been pushed through uh, through one of those, at least not that I can think of. I, the closest I can think of is the sequester. Um, yeah, and the sequester worked, which is why they got rid of it. <laughs> you know? um, it was kind of like, you know, I mean, we're talking old people stuff now, but like mm-hmm. kind of like Graham Rudman back in the day. Um, you know, that, um, I forget what they didn't call it sequestering, and they had a different word for it. But um, when it started to work, they repealed it because they don't want something that imposes discipline on them. Now, the sequester was kind of one of the best public policies of the of its time, and uh, everyone hated it, which is how you knew it was good. <laughs> um, well, th- you know, here's an interesting question. So, uh, and this is related. Maybe this is a dumb question, but why does Congress have to vote to raise the debt ceiling if Congress has already approved the spending that occurred mm-hmm. to incur the debt? That's a really interesting question. It's more interesting than you might think because there's an argument that the debt ceiling, that the the vote to raise the debt ceiling is essentially almost implied by the spending authorization. And, and here, here's what I mean. Article Section 4, 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States says the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services and suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. So it seems to me that default is unconstitutional. Hmm. Actual default. In other words, the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. It's an, Interesting, and I've seen scholars. I guess make there would have to be argument. a difference between an elective default, right, and uh, one that you're just forced into. Honestly. Mm-hmm. 
I, that's a, you know, so far as I know, there isn't really any judicial explanation of that, but it's essentially saying that the, I, I've seen a number of scholars treat it as essentially the debt, debt payments are, are guaranteed. Like this mm-hmm. is, this is required. Now, that's not the same thing, you know, that that's a little bit different maybe from raising the debt ceiling. This is talking about default, which you're talking about that you have to make a certain amount of minimum payments, well, 500 billion, whatever it is, to maintain the debt service to prevent default. But it's an interesting question to me. And one I, I want to dive into more is that once the authorization is made for the payment is the obligation to pay once the authorization is ex, is extended is the obligation to pay even if it incurs additional debt implied hmm. um i don't know i don't know the answer to that i'm just i'm putting a, a pin in it because i think it's very very interesting um well if it really is unconstitutional to question the debts and credit of the united states government i've been flagrant violator of the constitution for going on <laughs> two or three decades now because um i'm convinced they probably will run into a situation in which they eventually find it difficult to make good on those debts yeah i uh i think that uh that's not going to bind private citizens from questioning it <laughs> right um all right so here is a interesting question with respect to the cavalier treatment of classified material by public figures, what is the path process to return to normal expectations about the treatment of classified information? I have an idea. Kevin, Does do you it have involve an do what you say you're going to do and follow the rules you've agreed to follow? Actually prosecuting people. <laughs> yes. Well, there'd be that too. Yeah. <laughs> Making them pay a consequence for the failure to comply with the law. Um and that's that's your source of a reset right there, because I don't see the political process holding anyone accountable. Do you? No, I don't think so. I mean, how much of this do you think is a problem of, you know, contempt, essentially, so that, you know, no one takes the speed limit seriously because we set our speed limits too low. Everyone breaks the law. And if you get caught, it's just bad luck. Right. Or you're being a really, really egregious violator. And we've all even got these little, you know, mathematical models in our heads that, yeah, it says 70, but you can really do 77 and it's fine. Right. If you're going 87, you deserve to get pulled over. You know, uh, it's the old thing of everyone who drives faster than you is a maniac and everyone who drives slower than you is uh, is a ninny who's in your way. Um, but because we do overclassify stuff and because there is so much, you know, there, there's such profligate uh, regulation in general coming from Washington that it becomes difficult, I think, for people to take some of the more, um, well, not minor rules in this case, but rules that are less rigorously enforced seriously. So a rule that hasn't been enforced for 20 years um, doesn't feel like a rule anymore. It feels like something we used to do that we kind of stopped doing, and now we do things in a different way. It's like in, you know, in Texas, they have this thing every few years, the legislature revisits old laws that are on the books. And I'm sure other states do that, too, where it's, you know, technically it was a capital offense to be caught with wire cutters on your person at one point <laughs> or something because of the old range war stuff, you know, right, and, right. And cattle and things. Um, I don't think this is quite cattle rustling and uh, and wire cutters, but there is an element of that to it, I think, that um, so it's two things. One is that there's too much of it. There are too many, too much classification. Um, there's too much proliferation of this and there's no follow-up. There's no prosecution. There's no serious downside to not following the rules. So these things interact with one another in such a way as to, uh, 
as to undermine respect for that that order and that system. So maybe there'd be a two-part thing then. Um, we reform the classification system some and the, and the procedures and have less classification so it's easier to take it seriously. So it means something that it's not in your example of, hey, Bob, happy birthday. Let's have lunch on Tuesday. This is top secret. Yeah. And we prosecute people for breaking the laws afterwards. So, you know, say, look, we're going to reform this. We're going to make the system make more sense. We're going to rationalize it some. But then we're going to enforce it and you people have to follow the rules. Yeah. I mean, as of right now, we're we are in an untenable position where the more important a person is, the more cavalier they are able to be with documents. Yet the more important a person is, the more sensitive the documents they're allowed to possess. <laughs> yes. So it's a it's an absolute giant mess. All right. Here's we've got some potpourri questions. Cool. And this is one. I'm <laughs> Samuel. What movie are you most looking forward to this year? And why is it Oppenheimer? <laughs> wow. Um, I didn't even know they were making an Oppenheimer movie. Oh, Oppenheimer yeah. movie. It's who's a Nolan Oppenheimer? film. Uh, Oppenheimer oh, who de developed the atom bomb. No, I mean, who's playing him? Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's Thomas Shelby from uh, Peaky Blinders. Um, oh, what is his name? Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's yeah, Cillian yeah, Murphy. Okay, yeah, I've sort of stopped looking forward to movies coming out because um, no one goes to the movie theaters anymore. I mean, every now and then I'll go see something in a movie theater. It's pretty rare. Um, you know, the whole idea of watching something on someone else's schedule has just become so alien and unworkable to me. Um, I was looking forward to the first episode of The Last of Us. Uh, which I watched yesterday. Oh, how uh, was that? I haven't seen it. Pretty good. Good. Pretty good. Okay. So uh, apparently the story is, you know, that the, the two kind of creatives uh, running under the guy who designed the video game that it's based on and the guy who directed or produced Chernobyl. And the video game designer went with the studio with it. They were like, you know, action movie, action movie, action movies. No, I want to make Chernobyl basically, but with fungus zombies. And <laughs> so they, they hired the Chernobyl guy and it's this really kind of, you know, quiet, um, moody tense uh thing Ooh. that's developing kind of slowly so it seems like it's going to be pretty good uh oh good good i'm looking forward to it well my uh, answer is young woman from game of thrones who's the, the uh what was her name mormont um yeah yeah, yeah. and game of Th yeah but um my the movie i'm looking forward to this year is not oppenheimer although i really am looking forward to it the main one is dune part two the second oh, half yeah. I of the story. Part two coming out. Yes, you know the, I was disappointed in part one. This, this is one of the first times we will we'll have a sharp disagreement. Okay, I like Dune. I like the book. I like the books, and I've wanted to like the movies. Um, and I did kind of like the the one big one uh, with Sting in it. And, David uh, the David Lynch Dune. Yeah, the David yeah. Lynch one. Yeah. I mean, it obviously, had its problems, and in <laughs> retrospect, some of the the visuals aren't so so grand looking. But um, you know, a good attempt at, at making that. And um, who was it? Uh, the Monty Python guy who tried to make a version of it, right? Uh, oh gosh, was it Terry Terry Gilliam? Yeah, Terry yeah. Gilliam. I think yeah. he was trying to make it at one point, wasn't he? Which might yeah. have been fun. And um, and there's the other one uh, that kind of looks like Tron, where uh, it was maybe the late '60s early 70s someone tried to make a version of dune um maybe a brazilian director I can't oh the there, there's a whole documentary about it yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah recently and um mm -hmm. it didn't get made so um 
it's it's one of those books that um has resisted uh adaptation i think in lots of ways like i always thought someone should try to make hmm, not a film but maybe a long tv series of david foster wallace's infinite jest which i think um it's, it's my favorite novel so i'd like to see it done that way but i just don't think it's doable just like people mm. keep failing to make atlas shrugged uh, right um, although i guess someone is it ben shapiro's company that's trying to make a series of it now someone is someone um, yeah someone's finally doing the right thing and making like a 15-part series instead of a three-hour yeah. movie and um so no i mean the the new dune wasn't terrible i didn't think uh you know the actors are all pretty good um i liked the uh variation yeah. on the performance of the the Benny Gesserit and uh and and some of that stuff and the voice and and all that business but i just wasn't uh, i wasn't taken in by it you know i didn't uh i, I didn't think find we, myself entering the world so i think i might have an answer as to why that might be the case did you see it on an imax screen third row center i did not i did not there you have it there you have it because well that's why i guess two things in theaters i suppose yeah yeah imax it was beautiful immersive on imax just mm. yeah but i i have not seen a movie in anything but imax since the pandemic so <laughs> and that also tells you what kind of movies that i see they're all the big budget blockbuster movies but okay well, i i think <laughs> esther has just jumped into the chat too bad I'm not there to bash that pretty pointless movie. <laughs> no, I'll be uh I'll I'll probably watch a man for all seasons for the 195th time before I uh watch the second part of Dune. Uh, okay. I, I'm just moving on because I have to move on. <laughs> a political question re regarding Biden. Isn't this Biden. scandal, the document scandal, a good thing for Democrats? He's a weak 2024 candidate. Isn't this a kind of a convenient way to get rid of him that's not too ugly? Yeah, you know, this kind of, um, not to dismiss this as conspiracy theory, but this kind of, you know, conspiratorial thinking that assumes a high degree of coordination among actors in Washington and, uh, great deal of forward directedness i think is just uh, um doesn't reflect how the world actually is and uh, i'm not sure democrats want to get rid of biden mm -hmm. um if there were a you know knight in shining armor ready to take his place um that would be one thing but i mean what do they got gavin newsom um I don't think so. I don't think Gavin Newsom is going to be the next president of the United States. Uh, I've been wrong about predictions before, but let me lay down a marker there. I would say <laughs> I think it's less likely than likely that Gavin Newsom will be the next president of the United States. Um, it may be that a lot of Democrats are thinking that the worst of Biden is behind them. Mm. That, uh, you know, the, the, the worst part of the early days of his administration and the worst, the inflation and some of those other things are um, behind him. Because even though people will respond to the hypocrisy and inconsistency in the document story, they'll respond to $7 gasoline a lot strong, more strongly. Right. And right. Um, so if you get, you know, kind of inflation back to normal, decent, uh, you get any real wage growth uh, in, in the near future, then um, the case for dumping Biden looks pretty weak to me, I think. And I think a lot of Democrats must think the same way.
and Afghanistan further and further in the rearview mirror, which that was his real turning point in his approval yeah, ratings at yeah. Afghanistan. And I think to our national discredit, nobody gives a damn about that. Right, right. That was it was a, it was a ten day story, right? Yeah. Well, it what it did trigger an enduring loss of his approval rating that he's never really rebounded from. But mm. I hear, but nobody talks about Afghanistan now. That is certainly not right. front of mind to anyone. Um, okay, we've got a couple of more questions here. Um, Let's look at, all right. Oh, this is a question for you specifically, Kevin. Um, do you Never tend to engage more in than the other writers? I, I sense a veiled swipe at me here. Um, in the <laughs> comments, yeah. uh, why are you diving into the comments? Well, um, I don't use social media, um, <laughs> but it's a chance. Well, I mean, I guess comments are a social media of a kind, but um it's a way to interact with people and respond to things. Sometimes, you know, there's a criticism to be responded to or a correction, you know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. hard to believe, but I do make mistakes from time to time. <laughs> and um, it's, I mean, it's always something out of order in the world when that happens, but it does happen from time to time. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, the dispatch isn't just, a, it's, it's not never meant to be a one-way conversation. It's not yeah. just a uh, blast that out into the world and uh, never think about it again. So uh you know, people who are good enough to invest their, I mean, never mind the money, which isn't very much, but their their time reading something mm -hmm. and responding to it, particularly if they do so in an intelligent or thoughtful way, um, that's a conversation worth having, I think. Well, that raises, an, you You mentioned that, you know, you're Why don't you, social. you elitist? Uh, oh, you're I know. In the New York Times comment section. Oh, gosh, I... I did engage in the comments a lot more a lot more early on. And then they just got to be so voluminous. Yeah. Um, I would be, I would just feel swamped. And then I would try to respond to emails um more than answer the comments. So I sort of re I shifted a lot of my attention over if someone bothered to take the time to email me, I read every email that I get and I respond to as many as I can. So I kind of shifted to the email world, but I'm I'm really interested in. How many years has it been since you jumped off Twitter? A uh, while, yeah. It's uh, been a while. Six or seven, I guess, maybe. So how do you evaluate, how have you, uh, I presume because you're still off Twitter, you feel good about not being on social media. So how has that been to be in our profession, trans transition away from social media entirely? Um, you know, I never used it until quite late in life. And um mm -hmm. I didn't have much desire to do it. And then I had a job at one point that required me to. It was a mm -hmm. like a, it was a employment employer mandate. Uh get a mm. Facebook account was at the time. Mm -hmm. And um so I used Twitter thinking that it would um be a good way to publicize my work. Mm -hmm. And I've actually gone back and looked at this um in a reasonably rigorous way. I don't think it really worked uh for me that way. Um, so, I mean, you know, National Review, where I was for 15 years, has a pretty good footprint. And so if I want to communicate something to people, you know, you can put a post on the corner over there and maybe be seen by half a million people or something like that pretty quickly. Um, whereas even if you have, you know, 50 or 60 or 70,000 Twitter followers, um, you know, you're not going to be able to communicate stuff as quickly to those folks. And Twitter is so, you know, kind of politically siloed that um 
you know, I may as well be posting on the dispatch, right. Or wherever else yeah. it is that I'm, I'm, I'm at, you know, it's really weird. Um, there is a disconnect between feedback and readership, mm-hmm. um, in certain audiences. So for instance, I write for the New York post from time to time, get essentially no feedback from that. No one really? tweets about what's in the New York post that I write anyway. Yeah. I don't get emails about it. I don't get letters about it. Um, any of that kind of stuff. Now I know how many people are reading that stuff because we've got a good way of keeping track of it. Yeah. And, um, whereas other times I'll do or write things in other contexts that, um, have much smaller readership, um, but get some, you know, big social media reaction for one reason or another. You know, I wrote this thing for, for national review years and years ago about Anthony Scaramucci, uh, mm-hmm. when he had his, you know, five minutes of fame and, right. um, and I wrote about this thing of New York guys who try to talk like their characters from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and uh, which is funny because David Mamet writes for National Review now, so that's yeah. a nice thing. And for some reason, like two million people read that post. Yeah, uh, yeah. It just, um, you know, it just caught kind of caught fire for whatever reason. So, um, you know, of all the books, articles, and everything else I've I've written, um, that is, I think, still probably the thing that's been the most read. And a lot of that was social media driven. Um, you know, some couple of big accounts. Uh, yeah. Check this thing out. You know, I've really dived into the numbers because I'm really, I'm just discontent with Twitter. Um, mm. I, I, I dislike it strongly. I don't like what it does to us. I've always sort of thought that it was important for me to be on there because it's one, especially at the start of the dispatch, that was one of the number one ways that people found us was through my Twitter feed, Jonah's, Steve's, yeah. others. And I'm just really, but now, now that, uh, now that I've, seen what it's become and what it does to us, I've kind of rolled back my engagement. And and I really dived into that question of how many people read what I write through Twitter. Yeah. And the number is really small as a yeah. percentage. Um a, a good email list is infinitely better for reaching people yeah. than a big Yeah, it feels Twitter bigger following. than it is. And it feels bigger because so many media people are on it. And so mm-hmm. you know if you get you know retweeted by whoever uh it feels like a yeah bigger thing than it actually is well i'll I, you know hard numbers i think i put this in our slack once i had a tweet on an article i wrote that had about five million views of the tweet it was mm-hmm. promoting a a piece that i wrote and eight thousand clicks on the link <laughs> all right yeah so what am I, I mean, it would be a lot m- more profitable is a lot better use of my time to write more emails than to tweet more. Yeah. No, in some ways I want to make myself harder to communicate with, mm-hmm. um, you know, so people have to do a little more, a little more work. Uh, I mean, I mentioned David Foster Wallace earlier. One of my favorite things about him was that when people wanted to interview him, he would only do interviews in person and he only do them in this little town in Indiana where he lived. And so he would drag these, you know, giants of uh, literary journalism to the um, Cracker Barrel and uh, and make them eat meatloaf. And uh, that's how he uh, did his interviews. Um, okay, let's let's end on a question. Um, and I, I've got an answer to it, but I've cheated because I looked at the question already. Mm. Name a movie you think is great, but people do not know about. Movie I think is great that people do not know about. You know, there was a fairly recent uh, western called Hell or High Water that didn't oh. do huge business. 
Yeah. Um, but I think is a really very, very fine movie um, about a couple of brothers in West Texas who robbed some banks. And uh, I thought that was awfully good. I mean, it's not really an obscure movie, but um, not one that became, uh, you know, hugely uh, popular. So uh, yeah, I'll go with that one. I, I've heard very good things about that. I, you've inspired me to see it finally. Um, mine is a movie by Will Ferrell. Now, normally you can just say Will Ferrell and know that whatever I'm going to say next is a classic. Uh, but this one is a unique Will Ferrell movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Mm-hmm. And it is about, it's starring Will Ferrell and, um, uh, oh gosh, Will Ferrell, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Dustin Hoffman, Queen Latifah, Emma Thompson. And it follows an IRS agent who begins to hear a disembodied voice narrating his life as it happens, as if he's in a novel. And the narrator says that he, the main character, will soon die. And so what's happening is um, is that there is an author writing a book and the book and this, what happens to the character in the book is what happens to this Will Ferrell character in real life. Yeah. And it is a, it's a, it's been, it's really good. And it's very thought provoking about free will, destiny, et cetera, et cetera. And it is really well done. So it's called Stranger Than Fiction. Try it out. You will not regret it. Yeah. I like and that. Even though it's a good movie. Yeah. You saw it. Okay. I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I normally see everything Will Ferrell does. Uh, in- did you see his uh, one-man show on Broadway where he's W called uh, You're Welcome, America? No, I have not seen that. Pretty good. They drop him in like from a helicopter at the beginning. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I need to see it. I just saw Spirited, the musical he did with Ryan Reynolds, which is a takeoff on the uh, Christmas, Christmas Carol. Carol. Yeah, I, yeah. For, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Super, I I liked it, but I look, I'm a fan. I'm easy to please. I still think Anchorman 2 is one of the most underrated movies in the history of American cinema. Um, it's it, it's loosely it loosely the birth of modern cable news, and it's hysterical. So have you seen that one? Yes. Okay. Well, you don't have the same enthusiasm. I'm already determining that we have slightly divergent movie tastes. I think we have slightly diversion a lot of things, David. <laughs> I think that's right. All right. On that note, um, this has been Dispatch Live, and we'll be back next week. I think we already have a great lineup uh, for next week. So looking forward to seeing you. And that will be actually my birthday. How will you be, Tuesday, David? Uh, 54 years old. It's not a bad so, age. Yeah. Now it feels younger every day. So um, I'll be back next week and we will see you then. But and thank you as always for, for listening and uh, spread the word about the dispatch. You guys who tune into dispatch live are the folks who are dispatch ambassadors. So keep on evangelizing our good work. We appreciate it. And we'll be back. Thank you. <laughs>